Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Art versus Commerce podcast. And this week we sit down with writer Porter Fox. I met Porter because he owns the co-working space that I started working out of. And from the uh, first moment that I met him, there was a clear, open, welcoming vibe. And I think from a uh, for a writer, a journalistic writer, you know, that is so conducive to having people that you just met open up, share with you. Um, he just seems really tapped into the world around him, very aware. And that, you know, I, I picked that up within the first five minutes of meeting him. And so to to learn about his background and um, the work that he does, I think it all makes so much sense based on who he is as a person and and, and, and his personality. And I, I, I'd like to think that over the course of the hour, um, that really comes out in him. Uh, just just how how nice of a guy he is you know uh, and I think that he him and his wife have created a um, a really cool culture at nowhere studios which is an offshoot an offshoot of um, their literary magazine uh, nowhere nowhere magazine so it's really cool I think you know your personality imbues everything and so I think that um, you know as you're listening I think you can tell uh, that he's a nice guy and I think that that really affects how he sees the world and how he writes about it and so thinking about having a writer on the show, this is, we're starting to get into the territory that really excites me um, in, in that we can have people that are not directly related to filmmaking because I think, I use the term a lot in this episode, craft, you know, if you're, if you're part of a creative endeavor um, for your career, I, I think I, there are just so many similarities amongst professions and a, a lot you know it's the same struggles both internal and external um, financially and mentally and I just think that there is a lot of crossover and that you know if you substitute every time he says writing with whatever your craft might be you know editing cinematography I think that the parallels are really strong I was talking to Porter and I mentioned you know I have a background um, documenting a lot of street artists and graffiti writers and I would spend five to six hours just watching them, you know, paint a wall. And it was fascinating because to watch them go through that process, it reminded me so much of film editing, just in how you start off with like big sweeping motions and you kind of whittle it down and whittle it down. And that's not a revolutionary thought, but it, it becomes really apparent and you start to see all of these parallels. So I, I think, you know, in having this art versus commerce discussion, um, I really hope to be able to have people from a lot of different professions on. Um, because I think the more that we start to see these similarities outside of our own craft, the the more we can like really understand what what's going on for us and 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 have a better perspective overall, um, just making it more uh, holistic. And so, just some background on Porter. I mean, the guy has written for the New York Times Magazine, The Believer, Outside, Men's Journal, National Geographic Adventure, Powder, Salon dot com. You know, the list goes on and on. Um, so his journey is really. Is really interesting. He also is now writing books. Um, he has a book that was featured on the cover of New York Times Sunday Review, CBS National News, NPR. So, I mean, in terms of um, experience, he has a ton. And at this point, he's also um, he also teaches. Um, you know, he also teaches young writers. And I think that once you get to a point of also teaching, it gives you such a great vantage point. I, I know that the times that I've spoken with younger people, it, I, I walk away from it having learned a lot too. And so if you're constantly working that muscle, you can really explain your 
position and your thought and your thoughts. Well, New York accent. You can really position your thoughts better. Um, so this was a, I really enjoyed this hour, and I think that um, him being a writer and not directly related to film, it, it you know I think it makes the the conversation even richer. So as always, thanks for being here. I had a really hard time with writing when I was in school. Um, had really, what, what gave you trouble? Oh, just like, you know, the classic um, English classes that you would take, expository writing and and um, writing book reports and stuff. I just, I just had a hard time with it for some reason. Um, there's a weird stigma that went with uh, writing and English classes back then. Um, they were they were kind of abstract, whereas with math you could just there's a right answer and there was a wrong answer. But as a kid, it was very hard to figure out what was the secret to making your English teacher happy, <laughs> you know, other than um, just kind of this magical um, thing that the teacher wanted that I didn't didn't really understand. And I I and found that, that frustrated you. It was very frustrating, and 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 I do. I think this is still the case in in school, in elementary school, anyway, and even through high school, people are are um, designated. They're kind of knighted in a way where you're like, oh yeah, well that that person's a good writer, and that person's not a good writer. I know I could list off the names right now of the people that were the good writers in my high school. Were you upset that you weren't one of them? Um, I I just. I just thought that it was by birth, you know, I was like, mm. I guess that's just not me. You know, my brother was also had a tough time with, you know, English classes and, and tough time, meaning you're getting B's instead of A's. Mm. We, we were pretty good students. Um, but I do remember that feeling of like, no, this is, this is outside. You are either chosen to be a writer or not. And, and in professional writing, uh, in the world of books anyway, I still think people, think that they are either chosen to write books or they are not. And I, and I have come to completely stand against all of that um, and help a lot of writers as a teacher and an editor find their voice. And, um, so you're much more of the line of thought that this is, it's, not, it's something that you work for. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has a, a great teacher told me once that um, if you put two people in separate rooms and you tell them to write a paragraph about uh, baseball, um, anything in the world, yeah, there is no situation in which they write the exact same thing. If they did, that would be really weird. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe twins. Um, and what he said, but then what he said was that by virtue of that. What you write will never be replicated, and therefore it has a place in literature. And it is very unique. Um, and that's a, a big part of what we look for in literature. What, what is a new voice? What's, a, what's a, an interesting way of seeing the world and writing about it? And, uh, and man, that like really lifted a lot of weight off my shoulders, being like, all right, you, you, you don't have to get knighted. You don't have how, to live. How old were you when you came to that realization? So that was, oh my God, I was in my 20s at that point. Because I was going to say that when you were still in school and you were not one of the knighted ones, like what, how did you stay interested in the, in the craft? What, like, what did you like about the craft that kept you there even if you felt like um, you didn't have that intangible thing? Well... I didn't really start writing seriously until I was in college. 
and not until my junior year of college. And you think it was because you were kind of just told? Just wasn't a writer. You were just yeah. told that you weren't one. I just wasn't. And I don't even know if I was told that. It was, it was just like... Um, Is it what you told yourself? Casually, yeah. Kind of what, you told you, what I told myself, what I got good grades in and what I didn't get good grades in. And, um, but I did still love to read. And, and before I started writing in college, I do remember, this is really bizarre because this is a tough book to get through. Um, but I really fell for um, Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And I was young then. I, that was, I was probably 18 years old, 17 or 18 years old. And like, I couldn't get enough of that book. And, and even my parents at that point thought I was crazy because that book really rubs some people the wrong way and it's just kind of hard to get through. It's thick. It's thick and, and very dense. And, I've tried. And very righteous, you know, in some sections. And, and uh, it wasn't the naturalism of it. It, it was really the way that, um, that Thoreau could turn a phrase. I, I remember the one line about how life is, is like a is like a long railroad track with men lying down it, you know, along, you know, forever and ever and ever. And then, and then every now and then one of them stands up and just that imagery was like so great. Yeah, that is great. And, and when I did start to write in college, the, the tie in with music, which is really very strong and I, I completely believe in it. Um, most of what I write is, um, uh, creative nonfiction, literary journalism. I do write fiction as well. Uh, it's very much about rhythm. The, Your, the writing. Writing is. Good writing is very much about the, what an English teacher will tell you is vary the length of your sentences. They would always say that. I, I, I always remember that. Vary the length of your sentences. Well, what that is is rhythm. Yeah. And what you know, the more you boil down writing and you get down to poetry at the very end, that is all rhythm but you build it back up to fiction and, and to literary journalism. And there's a macro rhythm of how you arrange blocks in a story. Yeah. And there's a micro rhythm of um, the length of your sentences, how you arrange your words. Um, and, uh, and that tie in, I, I don't know if I, if I could have um, really gotten into and continued to write if I didn't have that, that really strong, you know, rhythmic background from, from, from studying music. music for so many years. It's yeah. interesting. I, I've had a few different, you know, people that are on the podcast are of different backgrounds and different creative um, endeavors. And a lot of them, the mu they're previously playing music has helped them either in editing yeah. for you writing. I believe it. And it's pace. It's powerful. It's pace. Um, we, when, when you finally did start getting into it in college, what were the, th what were the, what were the things about the craft that really were, you either romanticized or you were just drawn to? I, 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 vi I very vividly remember the first story that I published. I, I didn't know if it was going to be published, but I wrote it for the school newspaper. Um, and uh, it doesn't even matter what it was about. It's kind of a silly thing that I wrote about. But as I was writing it, um, it was, uh, it was, it was like reliving it. It was, uh, it felt, it, I had got such a rush of energy kind of recreating this story and, and reliving it and, and trying to make it visually appear to the reader, like what really happened. Was this the first time that that happened? Yeah. This happened in such a, like a it was visceral way? the first way? time I'd ever had a feeling like that. Um, it was so powerful and I remember 
the moment that it was in the paper and I, and I grabbed it and saw it in print. And that's a really powerful feeling for anybody. Yeah. You know, it's a small campus paper. The circulation was probably 1500, 2000, something like that. But I, but that was, I don't really, I, I didn't really have a reaction to that. I had a reaction to finishing this story and writing the last line and I could see it and I saw the whole thing and I was like, what, what that's you feel? done. And it was just this like, a very physical kind of like um, glowing inside. Like it was like a, a warm burning feeling inside of me and, and, and a lot of energy. And, and I remember um, the color of the couch. I, this sounds very dramatic, but like this really I mean, played it's out a vivid like this. Memory in your life then, it's huh? so vivid. And I, and I remember sitting on this, this blue couch with a white um, kind of like graph paper pattern on it and sitting there in total disbelief, just being like, what is this? Like, what just happened? Because you finished something, like an, an external thought, like it's it totally was. out? I don't know. I really don't know what it was, and I, and I still don't. Pride? But was pride a part of it? I don't think it was pride. I think it was more art. Hmm. It was a feeling of having created something artful. And um, I, I grew up with uh, artists in my family, my aunts, and... And um, had you had made things prior, but something about this no. one felt okay. So this was like the first thing, really. I had I had written um, some poetry when I was a kid. Um, that it was kind of God knows how this all happened, but it was uh, my poem was selected as as the main. I grew up in northern Maine, and it was a Maine state. It won some competition. Yeah. And I went to the Capitol and sat there and there were, you know, fancy people being like, and I was, I was like eight years old. Oh yeah. yeah. But I, I I didn't, I I really enjoyed that process, but it wasn't, it wasn't like this. This was like an out of body experience. And, and I actually at that moment was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, I had that moment. Well, yeah, that's, that's awesome that it's so clear. Cause I'm always curious about if people have that moment. Some, some, they know exactly when. Like like this and others don't. Yeah, I don't know what I would have done otherwise. I was I was in the process of um, taking the LSATs. You know, my yeah. grandfather was a lawyer, and I was just was going to be saving, a lawyer. I was like, that's behind. that's what I'll do. Yeah, and I really didn't know what else I would do. And um, the next week, I went to the LSAT prep class that I was taking, and um, the feeling was still there. And in the middle of it, I just got up and I walked out, and I never like, went. I, Wow. I was like, I know what I want to do. It's not this. And, and I just walked out. When you, how many years did you have left in college at that point? That was my junior year. And um, uh, Were you thinking about how am I... Like, because you have this thought, and it's undeniable, and it's based on the art. Mm-hmm. And then was there a thought also as, I'm going to do this for a living, and I know how it's going to work in terms of supporting myself? Yeah, I had no idea how that was going to work. Did you think about it? Did it scare you? I thought I was going to be poor for the rest of my life, and I didn't care. I was just like, I don't care. What's more worthy than, than doing a job that is something that you love for the rest of your life? And when I got my first newspaper job, which just seemed like the first job I should get, and looking back, it absolutely was, um, and I got my first paycheck for writing, that was another moment. It wasn't a lot of money, believe, believe me. But it felt great. My first salary at my, my first newspaper job was $15,650 a year. Oh, my God. Yeah, in that's Wyoming. That's technically... I think I guess it was Wyoming, illegal. You know, I was going to say, I think that's technically under the poverty line. Yeah. 
And I and yeah. I mean, I guess in Wyoming it gets you a little further. Yeah, and I wrote 21 stories for that newspaper the first week. Holy God. It was a hazing, I, I think. I don't really know. I still... <laughs> I would hope. I'm still friends with the editor who was a great mentor. I should ask him about that. But at any rate, I, I didn't know how it was going to work. I, I really thought... I knew even then that the writing life was a hard life and that people suffered and... So when um, you got up during that LSAT, it, it's, it was saying, I do want to be a writer, but it was also like... You were, it's interesting that it's an LSAT of all things that you walked away from because it's, I mean, a lawyer, that's a lot of, it's also a very, yeah. you know, lucrative. They do pretty well. They do pretty well. So you're, you're walking away from like a monetary situation and as it, well. it didn't even matter. And I, did, I think, you want, did you realize that at the time? I give my parents a lot of credit for this and, and my family. They, they, that was never a priority in our household. Um, you know, they hoped that we would be successful and be able to support ourselves. But it was really more about finding the thing you loved. My father was a boat builder. Um, he was an, Before that, he was an executive at a plastics company in New Jersey. I was born in upstate New York, and when I was three, we moved to Maine. And the reason we moved to Maine is that he dropped everything one day and said, I want to be a boat builder, and, and he moved the whole family to Maine, and that's what we did. So these and impulsive creative decisions are running in the family. It runs in the family, absolutely. And, and he ended up being a, a very highly re regarded, um, you know, world-renowned boat builder. And um, so I actually got to see it work out. And, and but it that, that, that must give some sort of confidence to you. So, because yes. Because it's like you can, you can take it, if you take the responsibility of this plunge seriously. Yeah. Things, positive things can happen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you believe in it enough, positive things can happen. And all I knew that day is that I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I really didn't care about anything else. What did you think of your ability I always thought I was a shitty writer, like most writers do. So you, I always thought I was I'm a saying, fraud. But like, is was there anywhere inside where it wasn't just that you liked it, and that's what gave you the ability to walk out of the L set, but also that you, a part of you, believed that you were good enough? I th I started think I, yes, but I started thinking that from re the reaction from others. So I never thought that. I didn't have very much ego associated with my writing. But when other people would say, this is great, we're going to publish this. That was an indication. Very too. slowly I started to, you know, really believe, I, I think I've got some talent here, or at least I have a way of putting a story together that's interesting to people. But thank God I didn't have that, that kind of arrogant approach that a lot of writers have that sinks them that is you know i am god's gift to the world and i can tell people the way things are i really never yeah thought about it that way well it's hard because it, it, to go down this road requires you to have it's like you need the perfect amount of belief in yourself you need enough that yeah. you'll do it but not too much that you'll you'll get in the way of it exactly exactly and how do you like there's no how do you, you teach that a aspect? good teacher will take your ego out of your writing and it's a very painful process um my teacher that did that was my uh, grad school teacher and he's a good friend to this day and still my mentor and completely changed my life and when i was going to my first class with him he teaches privately outside of the school and that's really where you learn yeah the guy coming down the stairs was like he just took my poem folded it into a paper airplane and floated it across the room <laughs> and i was just like oh god this is going to be painful and and it was but 
I, I didn't have a lot of ego, like I said, in there. Yeah. I think that's why he liked me and why we worked really well together. Um, well, it's also like ego is one is like on the other part of the on the other side of the coin is confidence. Yeah, and like you, you gotta, and you do need some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you, and you need more than anything though. You need perseverance. You have to be able to self-edit through to the end of the piece. You have to be able to, to take criticism. You got to be able to read a lot. That's really the only way to learn is to just read everything. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to be able to like write enough stories so that you can get go to a higher tier of payment. You know, and actually well, pay I was, for your Because I was going to say that while you're while you're at that job that's paying you fifteen grand a year working in the newspaper like yeah. how were you were you were you I guided also doing draft trips I um I, I did everything I probably had five jobs so so you and and how are you doing your creative writing what were you doing other writing outside of the job writing or was the job writing everything but back then the job writing was everything because I I dreamed of writing fiction and I dreamed of writing creative nonfiction, but I didn't have the chops for it. And I was just like very pragmatically, let's do this one step at a time. Let's figure out how to write a story. And I was at a great newspaper that was a, a small weekly in Jackson Hole, Wyoming that had won numerous national awards and had a great reputation and a terrific editor um, who grew up with his father in the Associated Press traveling the world. And, and, so you were at um, a good place. Was at a good place. For, for and, all the creative reasons. Yeah. And I, I, you know, got paid a shitty salary, but it was really like going to school. Um, so that was a really great um, entree to the whole thing. And it really wasn't until I was working at a magazine as a senior editor years later that I started going to grad school classes to learn about writing fiction and really writing creatively. And that was all nights and weekends. What pushed you to that? When, what pushed you to that, to doing that? I just got tired of, of writing canned journalism stories. You know, the first one I did back in college was a real thrill. Yeah. I ran in the paper, but lost its shine. It loses its shine. You know, you're doing the same thing for 10, 15 years. You know, I well, guess, how, I guess it was how long like, were you before you Twenty-two. Yeah. So actually, it was more. I was doing that for about six or seven years, and that's when um, I just wanted to. I, 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 Do you recall? I the, like the art of it. Like I really like. I, I like being off. You know, just kind of offbeat a little bit. Or and and I was doing it in a way that was very cheesy back then. I, I didn't have the chops to write creatively and have it be original, it was very cliche. It was very yeah. like, it was forced. Well, before you have your own style, you're just, you're just ripping you're off trying so many to mimic, others. Yeah, you're trying yeah. to mimic other people. Was there, so. do you have a, a clear um, memory of that moment where you decided to go to grad school? Was there an impetus yes, for it? absolutely. What was it? It was, um, I remember I was in, I do have these crazy vivid memories, not many of them, but I was in my apartment. Um, I was in California um, where the magazine was, and I, I just was fed up with the, the last piece I had written, which took a lot of time, and I really wasn't proud of it. And um, and I was like, screw it, I'm, I'm going to go to... 
uh, night classes at UCLA, and I'm going to do, I can't really start working on any of this till nine o'clock at night because the magazine job, like all of them, are, it's so insane. You work like 12, 14 hours a day. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. This is what I have to do, or I'm never going to be able to get on to the next level. And so I would drive after work up to UCLA, which was right at rush hour on the five with, if you know, if you know anything about Los Angeles traffic, (laughs) a 45 minute drive took two and a half hours. It was unbelievable. I did this for, I don't know, almost a year. Did you have ideas of what you wanted to write in your head? Yeah. What, what did, what did that look like comparatively to what you were writing? Like what do these types of, what does that look like in your head? It was fiction for me. I, I was, I was. It was really the opposite of what I was doing at the magazine. So it was, Naturally. it was a lot of fiction. Um, it was the setting was pretty familiar. Northern Maine, places I had lived. Um, you know, they say write what you know when you're getting started. It, it's a little bit easier to get into it. And I, I naturally wanted to write about what I knew about. So, so I wrote a lot of stories set in Maine. Um, you know, some set in the city in Los Angeles. Um, and were there um, common themes? Like why, um, why were, were you, why were you writing? Uh, I was right. I, that's a good question. I, I think it was, um, it really comes back to my psyche, my dreams, you know, like not my like aspirational dreams, my dreams that I have at night. Oh really? Uh, I'd write a lot of those down. I have really bizarre it was very abstract, and my, my fiction became very abstract. It was more like um, Barthelme than it was like Hemingway. It, w- it was really this, um, you know, big ellipses, big jumps in time. Um, I, I wrote a lot of dialogue. Um, I was told by another teacher that people will end up writing the types of stories that they hear when they're a kid. Hmm. And in Northern Maine, there's a really wonderful tradition of storytelling um, that's very dark, very ironic. Um, And uh, that's not what my stories ended up being, but it was influenced by that a lot. Um, So, so yeah, it just really was... I I started carrying around a notebook, uh, which I suggest to all writers that I know um, and I, it would just be a glimpse uh, in time this kind of moment something somebody says something I see something I'd write it in the notebook and every time I'd sit down to write a short story at 10 o'clock at night I'd pull that notebook out I'd find four or five things to fit together I'd put them on the page and I'd fill in the rest huh yeah that's really cool it was um, it was pretty um, it was pretty interesting at first I mean I was I was really tired. I was literally staying up till two o'clock in the morning and then getting up at six and going to work. I was just like a zombie. What, what's fueling that? Because is it, is it, is it, is, there's obviously a desire to create, but then are there, is that coming from like fuel of like you have certain goals that you want to achieve as a writer or like you had a place that you want? It, didn't, I, it doesn't seem like that way, but there must have been, where's the fire? It's, you know, I think it was a goal. It wasn't a goal of like, I want to get paid three bucks a word. I want to like, you know, work for this magazine. It was more like, I'd really like to have a short story published. I didn't want to be um, a reporter. You know, reporters go around and get everybody else's stories. I wanted to make a story. You know, I wanted to make a story that, that was my own. And, and, and it was really the art of it. I wanted to figure out the art of writing, the art of the novel, the art of the short story, the art of the, 
the long form nonfiction narrative. And that was to me, if you were writing artfully, then it was really one of a kind. And if you were out there working the beat, writing another story about a school board decision, you were just making money. You know, right. You're just like, so again, the, not much money. The fire were, was earnestly just to get better at a craft? It was really to go into a whole new level of that craft. And and that's an interesting thing about writing. There's a, there's just so many different yeah. genres within it that, that you can pursue and, and get good at. Reporting is one of them, and it, it is an art form in and of itself. Um, I don't think I ever mastered that art form at all. There are some reporters that I listen to now on podcasts and read their work in the paper, and I'm like, holy crap, I could never have done that. That is the depth, you know, in which they report is insane. Right. Um, no, well, you were going after something else. But I else. wanted something else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when when do you feel like you you got, when did you start to feel, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but satisfied, or when when did you start to feel like you can, that you were, doing what you had set out to do um, craft level wise? I, I feel like I have another bizarrely specific answer to your question. <laughs> um, it was a Tuesday, <laughs> 4 p.m. Um, I think when I finished my first short story, when I created something out of nothing and it was all writing and I knew that it was good because people told me that it was good and it got published. And it was after your first though. So you felt comfortable. It was upon just after that first. first one. It was. It was kind of, a, and that was really in the back of my mind. If there was a goal, that's what that goal was: make one short story, make it good, get it published. And is the reason that your first one was good because you just you didn't publish something until it was good? Nobody else would publish something of mine until it was good because I had sent other stories out. Okay, so so it wasn't your first. It was your first published. Well, yeah, and, I, and so when I say finish a story, I mean like finish a story and I'm never going to touch that story again. Like it's done. Stories that I sent out before, and this was very misguided of me, and I tell all my students and young writers I know, don't send anything out until it's done mm. just wait well I was too eager and antsy and and I sent out four or five stories that just weren't they were horrible they're terrible stories and and so embarrassing to look back at now but whatever that's this process you go through yeah have um, to. you got to go through it but but I I really should have hung on to those and um the one that I finished was um uh when you know I was I was working with my grad school professor um and it was a very short piece but when it was done he was like this is good mm. and i looked at it and i just knew like this is good this is really good and i sent it out to one place um and they published it yeah. a great a great literary journal they published it at that moment were you like were you comfortable calling yourself a professional writer were you calling yourself that before not before, but I think at that moment I was. So the same moment where there was like a comfortability, you also like, I'm now, I'm a writer. Some really crazy things changed in my life at that moment. You know, I, I considered myself a writer. I considered my uh, myself worthy of uh, pitching agents, of pitching editors that I wanted to write for, of considering writing a book. Um, things changed in my personal life where I felt confident living in New York and I felt confident just kind of like marching around this incredibly intimidating city and I was like I know what I'm doing here 
did that need, did all that confidence need to come from acceptance from other people in, in the, in the industry? I think it did only because I didn't trust myself and I really didn't even trust my professor because as harsh as he was and as tough a a critic as he was, he also was a friend and I, and I'm so self-critical that the deepest part of me was like, he might be full of shit, (laughs) but you know, when it goes up and I know how hard it is to get published in a literary journal, I run a literary journal right now and we turn away thousands of submissions and to have that one get through, um, you know, and even be nominated for an award. I was just like, oh, like that. Okay. That's enough. It finally was enough. To Total vindication. Me. Yeah. It just was like, yeah, it just made me feel like, all right, this, this is real now and I'm pursuing a real thing. And it's also a real thing that has no end. You will never master writing. No one ever masters writing. That's yeah. It's an endless chase. And I like that about it. It's my favorite part about filmmaking. I mean, yeah, things that are exactly. craft oriented are just, it's an endless pursuit. Endless You'll never get bored. No. My greatest fear is being bored in my life. I have a deep, deep horror of being bored. And you can have this thing with you um, forever, and you'll never be bored. You always have something to work toward. So once, you, once that happens, and so you're saying, like, um, up until this point, did one of the things that changed, you said that you're starting to look for literary agents, were you also... Were things changing for you in terms of how you supported yourself? Did you think I could actually do my my favorite genre of writing and I could support myself this yeah. way? Like, how did you go about thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. It it did change that as well. I I you know I started pitching better magazines that pay better, um, which is funny because it's it was a kind of piece of fiction that pushed this, but it was. You know, the only money, I mean, you get paid by literary journals, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that. But the only way to make a life as a freelance writer is, is really to, to either write books or, or write for nonfiction magazines, you know, big glossy magazines. And so I started pitching bigger magazines, and um, that's a whole nother mountain to climb. But um, I really, you know, started making a living. I felt like I could teach and I started teaching and, and made some money that way. Um, you know, I, um, I did find an agent who was terrific, um, put together a book of short stories, put together, um, a book proposal. Um, did that live up, did having an agent live up to expectations? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. How? Um, the great part about it is that you feel like you have access to um, you feel like you have access to the literary world at large, um, but at the same time, um, they don't do a whole lot for you. <laughs> they will ink the deal when the deal is done, and they will bat around ideas on that rare day when they can fit you into their schedule. Right. Um, but there are not that many agents um, that are going to hold your hand. And, well, yeah, maybe that, and maybe that's the way it should be. Well, yeah, because I, I, I just know like a lot of people who have, and not, not just literary, but commercial or whatever, where it's like, you know, in filmmaking, and it's like, you know, you get an agent and you think, oh, I did it. Yeah. But that you nothing has been... Achieved in 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 a, in a way. I remember celebrating way too much when I got my first agent. I got a bottle of champagne. I think I 
took a bottle of champagne to like someone who had, had told me what to wear that day. It's something ridiculous. You know, I was 20 or maybe I was 30. I don't know. I was pretty young and, and I was, you know, very excited and the world was my oyster. And, and I had the, I had the, um, you know, short stories all together and most of them had been published at that point. So, you know, it was, it was a very bright, you know, it was a very, everything was looking great. That was, I believe the year 2000 and five, maybe 2006. Mm-hmm. And then 2008 when I really was putting my proposals out there, the, the bottom dropped out of the publishing industry and the media, media industry at large just shrank by 30% overnight. And yeah. So a, uh, things a, got a lot harder. But. As a freelance writer, how did you deal with that? Well, I was very lucky as a freelance writer because everyone else got fired uh, or laid off. And at once, um, I was not fired. I had been living as a freelance writer for, I guess, seven or eight years at that point. I had my contacts. I had my system dialed. And because those staff writers and editors were no longer employed, there was a ton of freelance work to be done. They still had to make magazines. So I had more work than I'd ever had in my life. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was a great time to be a freelance writer. It was a terrible time. So when time you're saying to, the bottom fell out, you're not talking about yourself. Or you were you? Um, overall, the, the industry did did shrink. Entire magazines disappeared. Some magazines, National Geographic Adventure, that I used to write for, um, not a lot, but I wrote for them. They just stopped. They were just gone. Um, I can think of four or five magazines that I worked yeah. for that were just gone. But I worked for twenty magazines at the time, and and all the time when. You know, and I wasn't getting things published over here. Well, I just went over. I took the same stories and it went over here. You know, I got used to that bouncing around. So when a magazine shut down, I just all of a sudden their competitor grew Not yeah. a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. And uh, and there was more work there. So as a freelancer, I was totally set up for the collapse of the media industry. Well, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I think that you can argue like. Growing up, you know, my, my parents are in more traditional jobs, my dad being a, a, a lawyer and, and, you know, my mom working in, in, like, in medicine, so to speak. And so it's, it's funny that growing up I thought that was stable and the artist's life wasn't. Mm. And then when 08 came around and, and like, you know, my dad had to change jobs and like it was, it was, prob- it was problematic, it was hard. And I remember just thinking, you know, it's, that wasn't as safe as I had thought it was growing up and I actually felt quite resilient in a freelance role and it it really impacted like I was like oh man like I'm not being as I don't know irresponsible as I thought in a way because there was a part of me was like am I am I being irresponsible by not being on staff anywhere yeah and and that kind of made me feel differently about that the answer Uh, to that question huge revelation for me I felt the exact same way I felt irresponsible my whole life being a freelancer. I was working in my slippers from home. I'm wearing my slippers right now. <laughs> Still wearing them. But but I, I felt terribly guilty. I could arrange my schedule. You know, my brother works a full-time conventional job. My sister is a vet and runs a vet hospital and, and um, you know, has a traditional structure. And, you know, I, I just make my schedule. I also work probably twice the number of hours that they do and that's what every freelancer will tell you and you probably do too you work seven days a week but 
you can make your own schedule. You can work from really whatever location you want. Yeah. And you are responsible for yourself and very few people have the power to screw you over. And when you're working for a salary and uh, health benefits and you have an office and all of this, man, all that can disappear in a second. Unless you're a tenured professor, I guess, or yeah, so I yeah, hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you could lose everything in a second. And I have so many friends that have lost that. But more, it's more than that. Say you don't lose your job. Say your company, you know, supports you and, you know, puts you through schools and, and you make a bunch of money. You know, there's always a cap to what you can do. There's those above you um, that don't always want you to come up through the ranks. You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They don't always want you to branch out and try something like going from traditional reporting to writing fiction. Um, and there's typically not a lot of time for that. So artistically, creatively, there is a bit of a, uh, there are walls around you. I believe financially there are walls around you as well. I agree. Because as a freelancer, you make as much money as you want to make. You want to make more money? You just got to work more hours. You got to get more gigs. There's uh, not much of a cap on it. There is a cap to, you got to get some sleep every now and then. But, you know, if you're energetic enough, there's really not a cap on it. So I embrace that decision to not have a um, not have the security that a job gives you, which is the health care, the 401k, the um, insurance yeah. and, and unemployment insurance if you leave or whatever. How long how long into how long into it did you start to feel secure in, in your like when you're like, I can do this and this is what I will be doing. And this is, I've, I've, took a long I've time. achieved a, a, a career that I know I, I'm, I'm having. That took a long time. I, I really think the, the moment where I felt the most secure was when I learned that being smart with my expenses, what made me more money than just getting more jobs. The amount of money going out the door for rent and food and travel and drinks and whatever yeah. um, was equally important to how many you know, dollars per word I was being paid or who I was writing for, or how much I was writing. And the second that I learned to live a bit smarter um, and cut the fat, that's actually I started getting better gigs because I wasn't so exhausted with writing so much. Hmm. I was writing less and making more. That's interesting. I feel like almost in every podcast, there's a moment where we talk about the moment where you started saying no to things. Yeah. And things got better. Yeah. Do you have the exact memory of when that happened? <laughs> yeah, maybe not on that one. I, I remember the the moment where I, I, I um, decided to really kind of try to push into the next level of um, just having a better career as a writer. There was a long time where I was picking up every gig that came my way. I, I would write for anybody. Um, I, got, I, I, I've got only... Tiring? Oh, what? That got, that got tiresome? Yeah. Oh, my God. Mentally? I, I was writing so many stories. And stories I didn't want my name on, too. Um, and, and it was, um, you know, it, it was really crazy. I mean, I've never made a living in my entire life since college. I've only been a writer. And well, you made a living writing. 
I made a living writing, but like it's really hard. Like it's really, <laughs> really hard. So you you do cross a, a you do cross over a hump, and I I think I crossed that hump when I I decided to start writing stories on spec. I had never done that before. Why? Why? Why hadn't you? And what made you change your mind? I didn't do it because I didn't want to spend the time writing something that wouldn't be published. The risk was too high in your mind. The risk was too high. I didn't want to pay my own expenses and risk that money. It's it's expensive. Like, to like researching a story and researching stuff? traveling abroad. You know, I I put a couple thousand bucks on the line to do this story. It was a story I really believed in. I wanted it to. I wanted to do a long piece. Um, nobody would assigned me a 5,000 word story on an anarchic neighborhood in Copenhagen that had seceded from the country and um, was being taken over by the government now uh, 35 years later. I could not sell that story if, if I, you know, I would have had to be a very Sounds famous writer. I thought it was fascinating too. And I, I, found it at a moment where it was all about to end. And um, I did pitch it to a few people. And um, they, I mean, it's just a, either a no or just not even a response. And I was just like, screw this. Like, this is a good story. I believe in it. And um, threw down the cash, went to Copenhagen, lived in the neighborhood for a couple of weeks and wrote the story. And um, And I just, I sent it. I sent it to all the same people when I got back. I wrote it on spec. They all turned me down. I sent it to The Believer, um, Dave Eggers and Heidi Julevitz, and, and um, you know a bunch of those folks started that magazine in San Francisco for long-form writing like this. I just sent it to the slush pile. I didn't have any contacts, nothing. And um, they noticed he Heidi picked it up. Yeah, Heidi Julevitz picked it up, and she wanted to write that. She wanted to publish the story and um and i was just like yeah i, I was just really happy i was really happy with did, that was there, did, a, did a light bulb go off like i'm going to do this more because it worked out yeah but i could do it more because then i had a relationship with heidi and a relationship with the magazine and and um i'm having a, a memory right now shit i think it was a different story that i that i did for the believer it was the same idea it was a, it was a, my first spec story but i think my first spec story was actually a, a a profile of an author who had died recently um when i wrote it uh went to the slush pile went to the believer heidi found it worked with me on it uh, published it and then i think the the uh denmark story same idea nobody would do it and i was like but at that point i you, had you already had, done it once you started to feel good and it's absolutely like all the money that's required to travel to copenhagen like now you feel absolutely like you could do it and then Th I this mean, might have a home yeah and for i guess a writer these spec pieces are really like the equivalent in my world of just passion projects yeah i mean you're you're because if it doesn't work out you're still happy that you did it exactly exactly i mean you want it to go of course somewhere yeah and and these days you can make a blog and put it on your blog i guess but back then that was like so not really feasible once you started doing that were you traveling more because that was what you wanted to do and you were finally angling towards that it was um it was more a magazine that i worked for right after i i stopped working for that newspaper in jackson hole 
which is a big ski town, and I was a big skier growing up. I, there was a really natural segue to working for a skiing magazine called Powder Magazine out in California, and um, a terrific magazine that a lot of great writers wrote for when they were up and coming, and um, would publish you know, some long features, you know, pretty long, 2,500 words, 3,000 words. And um, so that's where I got a job as a senior editor. And they were amazing. They sent me all over the world. I mean, I was out of the country. I would say for five years, I was out of the country for four to six months of the year. So great. And uh, just went everywhere. I mean, and I was like, I would literally look at a, um, I had a globe, um, that had relief, you know, topography on it. Yeah. And there's little white splotches where there's snow, where there's permanent snow. Yeah. And I would just spin that thing, I swear to God, and look, and I was like, Turkey, they got snow in Turkey. Start looking online, email some people. Hell yeah, there's a great story there. So then we go Dude, to Turkey for a that's month. That's great. That was awesome. Um, what do you think it it takes to be a good travel writer? What what traits do you have that made it that make you good at it? I I wasn't good at it, and I just learned on the job. Um, so uh, I think you do have to learn on the job. You got to learn by taking classes. You got to learn, you know, from mentors and whatnot. And what I learned um, was that the the frilly kind of writing that you think that you need to learn to write to make it good is exactly what you need to take out of all of those stories. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that people want to read and what brings a story to life is detail um, at a sort of high level and then close down, it's contextual detail. And this is detail that not only paints a picture of where you are, but it spins the story forward. It's doing two jobs at once. And if you can get contextual detail, that is the gold of any story, but specifically of travel writing and, and long form narrative writing. If you can write a whole story filled with contextual detail, the reader cannot put that book down. I mean, it is, it is, it's what John McPhee does, you know, it's, it's what the, it's what the great writers do. It's what Ian Frazier does. And, and, um, they, that's, yeah, that, that's how you really engage the reader and, um, what strings together the contextual details, a whole lot of other stuff, but that's really the backbone. So if that's what you're going for, how would you describe your own style? detail heavy yeah. <laughs> yeah and and um and that's um you know sure i like to keep it simple i i i know a lot of big words i don't want to use them i, I want to use a, a simple vocabulary um and my grad school professor has a saying that says um simple words big ideas and i really like that and i i think that uh, some of the greatest writers in the world have made uh, incredible books and, and articles and whatnot from doing exactly that. Big ideas, little words. How how active are you? Because obviously you're gonna you're gonna edit your way down to that for the final piece. Yeah. How active are you in thinking this way as you're writing drafts? Like as you're doing. Do you just let what is intuitive come out and then you kind of take on a, um, a sharper knife later? Yeah, I, I've created, I think, I hope all writers do this. I've created a completely bizarre way of self-editing. It is like, 
it's so um, programmed at this point. It's and it's how I'm I'm writing books now. It's just on a larger level. It's like how a painter approaches a house. They have this technique. They do it this way every time. So I come at it. Um, at first, I get everything down on paper that I possibly can. Every detail, every thought, every um, conversation. It's it's insane. I'll I'll do a, a very short story for a magazine. I'll come back with fifteen thousand words of notes, and and I don't. I know I'm not going to use them all, but I. It makes writing the story easier, number one, and it makes it better, number two. So I have this just verbal diarrhea on the page you to start out with. Every possible everything way to go. Yeah. chronological. Um, if if um, I have a great interview with someone, I'll transcribe the interview into that same document. Um, so I get everything I possibly can, and then I come back and I uh, I believe in outlines. So I do an outline, and then I flesh that outline out a little bit. And, um, and then I just start writing and I take on each section, usually in order, but sometimes out of order. Um, still really like not worrying about what the thing reads like at all. I don't care if it's good writing at that point. So do you feel like your style is only in like inscribed in those final passes where you're trying to be as sharp as possible? Yeah. I, I think I have learned to become a great editor. To be perfectly honest, like, I don't even know if I'm a good writer. I know that I'm well, a where, good Well, that's editor. interesting, because where is the writing and where, and like, where is the editing? And It's good. That is a good question. You know, a, sometimes you whip something off and you don't touch it. But that's, that's a very, very seldom is that the way it goes down. Um, but I, I go through that process of self-editing, I would say, you know, five to ten times just working it down, working it down, working it down until the point where I put in a lot of TKs, TK meaning to fill in information later. I will not get bogged down by the fact that I don't know what date this happened historically. I just you won't I, let that ruin the flow. No, I've got to keep the flow going. It's, it's way more important to me to have the blocks in the right places, to have the arc uh, going in the right direction at the right time, to have the reveal happen yeah. at the right time. How do you get yourself into a, like, do you, are you actively pursuing like a, a flow state for your writing or do you just like whenever it yeah. comes, you just, how do you do it? No, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the witch's brew. Um, and it's, um, I do it by drinking the exact right amount of coffee. I do it by always writing in the morning when my brain is fresh. Um, I do it by doing manual labor in between writing sessions. That really clears my mind. I've it noticed that. Gets me fired up. Yeah, you've seen me do it. <laughs> yeah. um, I do it by uh, reading great writing. That really helps a lot, and not mimicking it, just being inspired by it. Mm. Um, so it's very I, active. I'm very active. I in my mind, I, I don't have a written down list. That would be psychotic. <laughs> but in my mind, I have a, a real go-to list of like what I need to do to to get it going. And then when I get it going, um, and this drives my wife absolutely crazy, I cannot be disturbed because it can take two hours to get into the flow, and it takes one interruption, yep. and I'm gone. Yep, I'm just gone. If I'm in the flow for two hours, I'm much more resilient to answering a phone call or talking to someone and getting back into the flow. What's the average amount of time that you feel like you are in these flow states? I'd say two to three hours. Yeah. 
I try. I really want to keep my writing to ninety-minute sections because I I read something about that, and I kind of believe that your brain starts to go to mush. Yeah. After ninety minutes, but you know, two hours outside three. That that's that's pretty much it. You had mentioned earlier um, that you were good at writing dialogue. Um, has screenwriting ever? come up for you yeah i i yeah i had a, a random I've, I've written a few screenplays and uh worked as a dialogue doctor for a producer a director a, yeah i guess a studio out in uh, hollywood and um that came from a short story that uh narrative published you'll probably know who he is roger the B-movie king of Hollywood, Corman, Roger Corman. He made Scorsese and Ron Howard and, um, Ron, yeah, Ron Howard, and uh, everyone you know made their first movie with this guy. And it was a piece of shit horror movie or something like that. He got an Oscar two years ago for a Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, wow. And uh, his wife read this story, called me up out of the blue. She said, you know how to write dialogue. I want you to fix the dialogue for our movies. And I was so fired up. I was like, wow. And then I learned about him. I was like, B-movie king of Hollywood. That's even cooler in a way. And he had made all these great directors' careers. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, John Travolta and Sylvester Stallone, like all these people like made their first so did, movies with him. Did guy. you like it? Did you like doing it? Like um, The why? movies were terrible. Well, it sounds like that was <laughs> inevitable. But Oh, yeah. Uh, the movies were terrible, but I loved doing the um, the doctoring. I absolutely loved it. Are you interested in doing screenwriting? Like, why? Absolutely. As someone who writes, I just don't have time. But I, absolutely. Well, I was. I guess yeah. It's a, is it a matter of commerce? Because as someone who writes creative fiction, I'm so like, why wouldn't screenwriting be a natural draw? And I'm a crazy movie buff. I mean, I, I love movies more than and, anything. And you didn't feel that that. Like a big pull? I that? felt the big pull, but I also saw everybody else in America writing screenplays, and I just didn't want to be another one of those guys. That's really what it was. I, 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 could, have, I could have done it. I, 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 if I were to do it, I would want to do it with a pro and learn the same way I learned how to write fiction, the same way I learned journalism and, and everything else. And I just didn't want to be another one of those guys that was a hack and was knocking out a score. What are you doing working on my screenplay? You know, like I, I just didn't want to be that guy. So I did the work for Corman and then I wrote for, uh, I did uh, screenplay, uh, I did scripts for a couple of documentaries. Um, so I guess like when you are having these visions of what a creative story will be and you're, when you're thinking about them, are you seeing them in your mind's eye cinematically? Yeah. And there is never a desire to, to write that out in, um, that, in like in that way? Always. But you just deny it, or it's it's a little bit more of a time thing, um, and I have more time now, and I'm adapting one of my short stories into a film now with a friend and a director in Brooklyn. Um, but it was really a time thing. I mean, I worked so hard to exist as a writer in New York, writing. Everything from, you know, long form stories to back then I was writing gear reviews. I was writing uh, little pieces about hotels and wherever, anything, you know, that could pay the bills. And it just takes so much time. Um, I just, I really didn't have time to do it. I have time now and um, have, you know, revisited some of those ideas. But specifically in working on this script, 
uh, with a friend to adapt a short story um, that I absolutely see as a movie. And um, I, it's, a, it's a huge dream of mine. But having some friends in the industry and having lived in Los Angeles for a little while, you know, it also makes me afraid that it's a bit of a red herring. You know, you just mm. kind of go after it and go after it. But you really never make a movie and you really never sell a screenplay and you really never do anything with it. And I like making stuff, you know. I like making books and I like making things that really happen. So. Yeah. Well, moving into the last thing to talk about, you're, you're writing two books at the same time right now, right? Or, or just one? At, yeah, I was going to say at least two. I'm writing two, two books at the same time. I still have two books in the hopper um, that I'm hoping will be made. Does the process for these, for like large books, does that overwhelm you? How do you deal no, with dealing with it. such, with such like, like in my world would be a feature? Like how are you dealing with, with the bigger projects? I just love projects? it because you have more time. And um, I'm, I'm pretty good at organizing my time. I didn't know this before. And again, with being a freelancer, I sort of thought I was that, you know, kind of hack that was just didn't want to go to a real job or whatever. But it turns out that it has made me very, very good at organizing time, figuring out how much time I need to make something good and working backwards from the deadline and setting deadlines that I stick to. And by the end of it, the book is done and I don't even remember writing it. That's the weird thing about books. I don't know if movies is are movies the same way where you look uh, at it and you're like, definitely who not. the hell did it? Who did oh, that? Well, I mean, they, they do take so long that by the person who you were when you started, you're not the same person when you finished. And like yeah. the art that you are capable of has also transformed in that time. So in, in a way, yeah. maybe, but I don't but know. An editor told a great friend of mine, an editor told me once, he said, writing stories is like having a baby. You go through a tremendous amount of pain. You produce the thing. There's a great feeling of relief. And then you look at the thing and you go, where the hell did that come from? I don't recognize it at all. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that is really how I feel. Cause I do, I really segment it out. And when it all comes together, um, you know, I read through it. I'm like, I have no idea who wrote this. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> um, I guess to finish on how it seems like you have your hand in so many different genres and styles and like, how, how are you defining success? Happiness, pleasure. I feel great happiness and fulfillment almost every day. And I, I kind of have since I finished that first short story that I liked and, and it got published. Like I, it's like a monkey come off your chest in a way. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I, maybe I really did think I was a fraud up until that point. And, and then I got to a point where it felt real. And, um, and I, I really, you know, I, I feel bad saying it because I, I know a lot of people, a lot of people hate their jobs, but you know, I, I kind of feel really happy, like every single day. And, um, and part of that happiness probably comes from the fact that I'm not so stressed about money every day. Um, and I, and I don't have to write the volume that I used to have to, um, which really lowered the, the quality of it. Um, you know, I, I really feel proud of pretty much everything that I send out to the world at this point. And um, that's, yeah, that's success to me. Oh, man. 
That's a great answer. <laughs> I'll take it. Cool. Uh, well, thanks so much for sitting down. It's uh, it's been great hearing all your thoughts and getting to know you a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs>